They sang a very hopeful song, didn't they, about a very harsh reality, and that is the reality of pain and suffering, which we, even as Christians, experience this side of heaven. I was wondering uh, recently, as I was reflecting on all that's befallen our church members of late, are these trials, maybe you've thought about this as well, are these trials which come our way, are they random Uh, Are they just due to the cruel winds of fate, or is there there some purpose to them, Uh, some overarching purpose, or do they they just happen? Are they accidents? Uh, uh, Are they random, or or, or is there something more to it? Well, that's the question, that's the issue we're going to take a look at tonight in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to begin tonight with a verse I'll bet the vast majority, maybe everybody in here has heard of, knows of, maybe even has memorized uh, because it's so oft repeated. It's Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is where we'll begin. I think you know this one. It begins this way, and we, does your Bible say no? Yes, something like that. Does anyone have a Bible that says, and we feel? No, okay, good. We're all on the same sheet. So feelings are different than knowings. Uh, Feelings are good, God-given things, but tricky, aren't they? Feelings, they fluctuate, they vacillate, they come and go. Feelings are uh, amazingly tied to circumstances. Good circumstances produce good feelings. Painful circumstances, not so good feelings. So we're not talking about that here. Paul, who writes, is making an appeal to that which we know. It's a cognitive appeal. Uh, It has nothing to do with feelings. And we know, and so Paul is saying, sometimes we, we, we are consistent. We feel consistently with what we know, but whether we feel it or not, we are to know what he's about to tell us, and here it is. And we know that God causes... So we find out that the primary ruling entity of the universe is God himself. It isn't the cruel winds of faith. It's not chance and whimsy. It's sovereign God who calls the shots. So what happens to us, good things, bad things, do not happen randomly. We could rule that out. God is the sovereign. The creator is the primary causer And the creator is the primary controller of what? Well, as it says here, of all things. That's what the text says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. So all things encompasses all good things. We like that, don't we? We have no no problem with that. Bring it on, oh God. I'm ready for good things, pleasant things receivable things. Please give me the benefits of what it is to know you by name. So all things indeed encompasses good things, but here's what we have a problem with. All things also involves bad things. This is very hard for us to harmonize. How could it be that we serve and worship, bow before a good God who nonetheless allows bad things to come our way? That's a tough Tough question. Now, the text does not say that God causes all bad things, does it? It says he makes use of all things, even 
and including bad things. In fact, he could somehow make use of all bad things to such an extent that, as the text says, they all work together for good. It's a marvelous thing this God could do. He has the capacity to take all the disparate elements of life that befall us, the good things, the bad things, they seem inconsistent with one another. He, he alone has the capacity to take all of these bits and pieces as if they're puzzle parts, and he has a way of harmonizing them and, and fitting them together so that they serve his purpose, which is, according to the text, our ultimate good. I don't always feel this, neither do you, and that's why Paul is saying, forget about feelings just for a second. This is what you are to know. I suppose we could say this is doctrine, isn't it? Paul is making an appeal to to our head at this point. Put this in there, says he. God has the capacity to use all things, even bad things, to accomplish his beneficent purpose, which is our ultimate good. So all things surely include the good things God gives us, but it also includes, this is how Paul referred to it way back in verse 18. It includes the sufferings of this present time. That's how Paul referred to it. All things include even those, and that means typhoons and tsunamis. That means famine. That means accidental death. That means disease and dying of all kinds. All things are included in all of that. God is sovereign, in other words, even over that which we suffer. That's a hard one to get a grip on. Things just don't happen to us out of the blue. He's the cause of all things. I didn't say he caused bad things. I just said he's so sovereign he could make use of bad things. So this surely includes the major catastrophes of life, but it even includes the minor irritations of life, like you're on your way to church and you get a flat tire. Doesn't that get you? It gets me. You're on 45, you're stuck in a traffic jam. Somebody cuts you off. Your air conditioner goes on the blink during Houston, August. Things like that. You go to the dentist to have one tooth filled and he finds three others in need of the same painful treatment. All of these things, even the minor irritations of life which get to us, even these things are subsumed under the umbrella of all things. The text says, this is what we are to know. Our feelings can catch up with it later, but we are to put it in our head now. God has the capacity to use all of these things, major catastrophes and minor irritations, all. God has the capacity to use them all to work together for good. So does this mean when you are close to someone, a friend or family member, who's experiencing loss or crisis or pain or grief, does this, this mean you ought to share Romans 8.28 with them right away? You ought to make a beeline to their home, text it to them, email it or knock on their door and say, have I got a verse for you? I don't think you should do that at all. Do you know what a grieving, suffering, hurting person needs more than preaching from any of us? More than Romans 8, 28? They need what we do here at the church. They need a word of comfort. They need a look of patient understanding. And they need a touch that says, I permit you to go through all that you're going through for as long as it takes. That's what they need. I remember years ago, 
and Mike Schumacher and I, he's our director of counseling, some of you know him, um, we were in a ministry uh, sponsored by our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, wherein we would minister to hurting pastors. Pastors are human, you know. And so we were uh, extended the privilege of pastoring the pastors, helping them. Some were grieving loss of their own. Some had church problems. Some had family issues or health issues, whatever it was. And we would go away somewhere, away from their churches and ours, just to be together. We'd sing, we'd pray, we'd speak into their lives. And then we'd bring in guest speakers from time to time, some of the most wonderful folks our convention has. We'd bring them in just to encourage these men. But oftentimes, many of the guest speakers would bring Romans 8.28. It was as if they, they conspired to do so. I mean, eight out of ten of our guest speakers brought in Romans 8.28. And finally, one of the hurting pastors came to me privately and said, Stuart, if one of these guys shares Romans 8.28 with me one more time, I'm just going to kill him. <laughs> it's not that that hurting pastor was denying the truth of Romans 8.28, but a truth untimely shared becomes a, a weapon, doesn't it? So when someone is in the midst of their pain and suffering, the best thing to do is what Job's counselors did well until they opened their big mouths. Nothing, just be there, ministry of presence. Somehow the uh, trauma of isolation that a grieving person or a hurting person is experienced, experiencing is dissipated just in, by you or I being in their company at the time. So I don't recommend running out of here with Romans 8.28 to share with everyone who's in the midst of their grief. Wait a little bit. On the other hand, for those of us who are reasonably well tonight, we're not in intense pain, let's say, tonight, now's a good time to get Romans 8.28 into your head and on your heart because it's a little too late in the midst of the crisis. Then we can't even think straight. We can't see straight. We're out of balance. We're thrown for a loop. Now's the time to sort of do our homework and prepare for these hard times the men sang about that, that may be our experience. We don't know. We don't know. These are unpredictable things. So please get to know the sum total of Romans 8.28 to help. I'm really slowing down. I'd like for us to look at every single word to facilitate memorization of it. So this popular verse, Romans 8.28, could be easily misunderstood, you know. It surely doesn't suggest that all things are good. It only declares that God causes all things to work together for good. Furthermore, this verse, this very hopeful and helpful verse, did you know it's not for everybody? <coughs> Did you know that? Uh, some people are excluded from the truth and reality of this verse. You can see that embedded in the verse. I'll read it to you again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, here's the exclusive group. Look, to those who love God, uh, to, to those who are called according to his purpose. So this truth, if I'm reading this correctly, applies only to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Two things are said, but it's two things said of one people group. These two things are said of the one people group known as Christians. 
Christians love God. Christians are those who are called according to his purpose. <clears throat> this verse is only for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. This is just, this is not some blank check that everyone could get in on. No, no, no. When people by faith are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, well in advance of heaven even, which we really uh, long for, we sang about it, and we ought to look forward to well in advance of heaven. This verse gives tremendous hope. It reminds the Christian that God is orchestrating, harmonizing, making use of all things, even painful, terrible, tragic things, so that our ultimate good is brought about. Christians are those who love God. Don't get nervous. Fully? No, none of us do. Flawlessly? No, no Christian loves God flawlessly. Perfectly? No, it would take perfect people to love God perfectly. We are not perfected to that extent yet. So what does that this mean? Those who love God. Do you not notice a new direction in your life, a new inclination? And though you're maybe not the best at it, and though you want to be better at it, isn't it your interest now in doing that which pleases God and avoiding that which displeases him? To do that which pleases God, to want to obey him, is to love him. God says this is the mark of love. Do you love me? Well, then keep my commandments. I know we're not entirely perfect in so doing. But don't you sense in you a new inclination to want? Don't you sense a sorrow moving you to repentance when you and I disobey one of God's commandments? I never had that experience. I must tell you, I sinned with impunity. It didn't bother me one darn bit that I violated God's word and commandments. I didn't get up in the morning thinking, how could I live the day that would be bring glory to God and that would be pleasing to him. I thought, I want to get all I can out of this day. I want to squeeze out all of its benefits for my own sake. It was a rather self-centered existence. It wasn't a savior-centered existence. Do you not see that change? That's what it means to love God. If you see that, but even if it's imperfect and with flaws, even if that's the case, even though you have a lot of room to grow on, if you see this new direction in your life, that's an evidence of the fact that you are a Christian. And for you, to those who love God, Romans 8, 28 is intended. Now, there's something else about this. I don't think you or I have it in us, in and of ourselves, to love God. I, I just don't think we have that. I think it has to be produced I think it has to be invited. And, and, and so you see that phrase, uh, those who love God. Then it says, who are called. God did the calling. God did the calling of those who are his into relationship with him. He affected our hearts. He moved us to repentance and confession of sin. He engendered faith in our lives so that we could behold the Savior. God is behind the calling that ushered us into the faith to begin with. In other words, first, he manifested his love to us. All we've done in response is love him back. So even our capacity to love God is not self-generated. We respond with love towards the love that God first manifested to us. Hence, it says, in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So this verse is only for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. In other words, this verse is only for those who are Christians. So in summary, 
what we just read is designed for us to know. Feelings will catch up. But for now, it's designed for us to know that God directs. It's not whimsy out there. It's not arbitrariness. It's not fate. This verse is designed for us to know that God directs the affairs of life in such fashion for those who love him that the outcome is always purposeful and beneficial. But what could possibly be the beneficial purpose behind our pain? Maybe you're asking yourself that now. What could possibly be the beneficial purpose behind the absence of my spouse, the absence of my health, the absence of my job, the absence of family harmony? What could possibly be the purposeful benefit behind all that? The answer is given in the next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, folks, this verse has stirred up much controversy. Are you aware of it? You see those words foreknew and predestined? Sadly, those two words <laughs> are causing a division in the body of Christ. Even today and for a long time. Those two words have been so variously and diversely interpreted that they have led to two major theological camps. One camp is known as Arminianism. Isn't that a big thing? Arminianism. It's named after a Dutch pastor named Jacobus, Jacob Arminius. He advanced this particular position with regard to these two little words, foreknew and predestined. And he said it simply means that almighty God, omniscient God, knows in advance those who would one day come to repent and believe in the gospel. Those whom God saw coming his way end up being the elect and being saved. So the first view, the Arminian position, denies that God has predetermined who will be saved and who will not. They say it's a matter of human choice. But God knew the choice people would make beforehand. He foreknew them. And in that sense... They become the elect. So that's the Arminian position. Now, the second camp is named after a Swiss reformer named John Calvin. And so that's called Calvinism. Arminianism, Calvinism. And the Calvinistic position with regard to these two words, foreknew and predestined, is that these are indeed a reference to God's sovereign choice with regard to the matter of who will be saved and who will not, and that God has already determined both categories of humankind. So, so to try to make it simple, Camp 1, the Arminian camp, emphasizes human responsibility and choice. Camp 2, the Calvinistic position, emphasizes divine sovereignty and God's election of some to salvation. So that's all I'm going to say about it now. Uh, however, uh, though I can avoid saying more now, I'm afraid I cannot when we get to chapter 9. 
and therefore I'm going to save my shots for chapter 9, praying intensely that the rapture would come before. <laughs> and folks, I, I think, just to give you a hint at what I think is the best, most balanced position, I think both schools of thought bring truth to the table. Uh, the problem is the truth each brings seems to be inconsistent. Therefore, we're led to choose camp one or camp two because neither we nor anyone throughout human history, no theologians of even high caliber, has been able to harmonize both apparently inconsistent perspectives. But I'm telling you, I know someone who is able to harmonize these two positions and he is almighty God. I refuse to be forced into one camp or the other. That's divisiveness. I would rather say, wow, how incomprehensible are the ways of God. He has a capacity to harmonize both considerations, uh, divine sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility in salvation. I'm not trying to cop out. I just refuse to let people pigeonhole me. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? And I know why they want to do that. Then they can determine whether they want to be friends with me and trust me depending on whether I give the right answer. In other words, if I'm in their camp, we're, we're, we're okay. But if, folks, we should not make this a test of fellowship. Could I tell you something? There's two groups of people, those who have the son and those who do not. I want fellowship with all those who have the son, don't you? I am really not threatened by the fact that other Christians fully saved just as I am don't see all things the way I do. I'm just not threatened by that at all. They're entitled to their wrong opinions, but we can still worship Almighty God together. And I just don't want to divide over things like this, especially in this day of age when we're looking rather foolish to the world community. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, not by our theological precision, to tell you the truth. So we'll get to this a little more in Romans 9, but just a little bit of an introduction to the subject now. And for now, I would like to say this. You might think this is a cop-out also, but it's not. It occurred to me that these two words, foreknew and predestined, in this context, Romans 8, 29, are not a reference to election to salvation at all. They actually have nothing to do with that. They simply, these two words in verse 29, simply confirm that all those who are saved have been predestined for a purpose. This really is not saying a thing about some being predestined to be saved and some not. We're reading that into it. This is saying that those who are saved have been purposefully predestined for a purpose by the one who saved them, Almighty God. And what is that purpose? Here it is. It is to become like Christ. For those whom he foreknew, Christians, he also predestined, here, look, to become conformed to the image of his son. This has nothing to do with predestination to salvation. It's often used by the Calvinist camp wrongly to prove the point. It has nothing to do with being elected to salvation, whereas others are predestined to perdition. This has to do with the fact that those who are saved by responding to the offer to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ are purposefully predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is really, really good, and I'll tell you why. If you're a Christian, 
growing, continuing, persisting, persevering, making it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with sovereign, almighty God who purposed, who predestined you, someone who loves him, someone who's called according to his purpose. He determined, apart from you, to make you like his only begotten son. You can slip and slide. You can take one step forward and two steps back. You can have your flaws and failings and imperfections. You can do all that you want, but you cannot shake the God who purchased you with a price and has predestined you to be like his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, one day. This is God's purpose for us. And he can make use of all things in accomplishing this purpose. You can fail for sure, but God cannot fail. God will not fail in accomplishing his purpose as it concerns you. If you are a Christian, you will be conformed to the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has purposed through all the events of your life, good ones, bad ones, to make you to be more like Jesus. That's what he's up to. That's the explanation for what has happened to you. You will never be exactly, nor I, I shouldn't say you, we will never be exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ, physically or in other ways, but we will be much more like him in a moral sense, meaning we will one day be absolutely free from sin. Think about it. We will be given glorified bodies just as he has come into his post-crucifixion glorified body. We will be like him in that regard. And this is all God's doing. Therefore, we have assurance that we will continue on forever with him. If this depended on us, we could lose it all. I got it. We could lose salvation. But <laughs> it has nothing to do with us. Those of us who have been saved are predestined for the purpose of becoming like God's only begotten son. Why? God intends to have a family, not just an only child. Jesus. Therefore, his purpose through all things, even bad things, is for us, as it says, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren, you see. He is forever supreme. I know that. We are being made like him, but we will never be him. I know that. He is the firstborn. Uh, that means supremacy. That means special heir of the father. I know he's in a distinct character as the firstborn, but we Christians are predestined to be in his family with many others whom God the father intends to conform to his image. Could I tell you something? Salvation is not about you or me. I hate that, don't you? We've really made it a rather self-centered thing. That's why we're shaken in the assurance of our salvation so often because we think it has to do with us. It is not really about us. It's about presenting us to the only begotten son as family members. Why is this important? You know, when God populated the earth through first parents, Adam and Eve, he intended for all humankind 
to be part of his special family. Well, that didn't last very long. Just read Genesis chapter 3. That was a terrible thing for the human race, but nothing limits God and his kind intentions. And so God determined, even from before time, because he saw all this coming, that he would extract from the entirety of the human race those who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, respond to his call, his wooing and his his work in our hearts, accept him as Lord and Savior, love him with our lives. God decided to extract some from the totality of the human race, not based on uh, any merit or virtue or anything like that, based upon acceptance of the virtue and merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. God chose to extract some from the entirety of the human race to present to the only begotten Son as manifold other children, brothers and sisters of his, who, though he be the firstborn, will be like him in a moral sense and come into the same kind of glorified body fit for eternity that he now inhabits. Good night, folks. God has the capacity to use your present loss, which you're struggling with today, losses the rest of us may experience later this week. God has the capacity to use all of this to accomplish his ultimate purpose, and that is to conform us to the image of his only begotten son and to make us to be holy members of the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus will become the head of a new race of humanity, purified from all contact with sin and prepared to live eternally in his presence. So whatever God permits to come into our lives is designed to conform us to the image of his son. I would never preach this to you in the midst of your loss, but I want to now before you get there, and I want to know it myself. I want to prepare myself for what may come. I don't know these things. I don't want to cower. I want to say, oh God, sovereign even over all suffering. How majestic is your name? Who but you alone has the capacity to use that which is bad for good, the intended good being to make me my nature not like the only begotten son to make me have a nature like his. Then I feel like saying, oh God, use whatever you choose because I trust you to use it all for good. Do you know what the problem is? We translate good in material terms, but God sees it in spiritual terms. We think it's good when we win the lottery. <laughs> we think it's good when we get the best parking spot at the mall during Christmas. We think these things are good when we get the job we've claimed. We think these are good. These are all material things. You know what I mean? God uh, intends to bless us with his first best, and that's not material things, all of which will perish. So Ephesians says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, the likes of which are in the heavenly places. God never promised us health and wealth. That's a very false and misleading theology. He never promised us that. He promised us that he would use all things for the good, and the good is spiritual. That is to say, to make us to be like Jesus. You know the thing that disturbs you most and me is this battle between flesh and spirit. Can you imagine the day when it's over? For the enemy, flesh has been done away with and replaced with a glorified, sin-free body so that we can worship the Lord Jesus Christ without looking at the clock 
without falling asleep, without being distracted by the guy next to us who can't sing on tune. Yeah, 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 it'll be heavenly worship and service. Can you imagine the day when we can serve the Lord without ego and narcissism? Can you imagine the day where we serve even if we don't get patted on the back? Can you imagine the day when we don't care about what God has called someone else to do? We're just in an unbridled, undistracted, uncorrupted way serving and worshiping him for our... Here's the deal. The fact that we're not like Jesus causes us a whole lot of trouble, folks. Can you imagine how good it is for God to use all things for the good, to one day eradicate all those fleshly inclinations so that we're free to worship and serve the one who matters most? So then we'll realize, oh, God, I've lost materially. Things that I can touch and taste and handle have uh, eluded my grasp. But to be in the grip of the Lord Jesus Christ so as to be conformed to his image is worth more than all the riches the world has to offer. Do you agree to that? Good. These are things we should know. I don't think I'm so hot. I think that should I experience great loss, the likes of which some of you are dealing with now, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think I, I'm going to be able to come up with what I'm just sharing now. But that's why I, I, I want to hear myself share. I want to get ready for whatever God may choose to use. I want to know, Roman, I want to know Romans 8.28, even though I may not feel it all the time. Our salvation is not for our sake. <laughs> it's for the sake of the one to whom we will be presented as many, many brethren. The next verse, I'll make this brief. The next verse tells us exactly how God intends to do this. Look, verse 30. And these whom he predestined, Christians, he also called, and these, can you see the phases? These who he predestined, he called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. All phases, and God presenting us to the Son, and all, do you notice, in the past tense, but one of them hasn't even happened yet. Can you see the last phase in this whole salvation experience has to do with being glorified? It's expressed, as are the other phases, as if it's in the past tense. Why? It's so certain of being accomplished. God, under inspiration, has the apostle Paul write it down as if it already took place. I'm not in my glorified body yet, neither are you. I don't have a sin-free, sickness-free body yet, neither are you. That's the future component we long for. That's called glorification, but God speaks of it as if it already took place. He knows all of our slipping and sliding and all this stuff that's going to happen before he returns. It doesn't matter. We don't affect his plan we are affected by his plan. And part of his plan, announced in advance, is that there will be a day when all that God has done, this whole phased redemptive plan of being called and predestined and included and justified and glorified, will lead to a finished product. He will consummate his work of redemption and we will be exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, our lives are not controlled by impersonal forces such as chance or luck or fate, but by our Lord. Some of us are going to Israel in September. Uh, I spoke to my sister the other day about this. She thinks I have flipped my wig. She does not yet know the Lord, this particular sister. 
Aren't there more people to save in Houston, said she? Do you not follow the news, said she? And I thought, there's reason to what she said if you don't have the mind of Christ. Because she thinks life subjects us to whimsy. There could be accidents. Something could happen out of the blue. But I think, maybe you do as well, I think I, we Christians, are immortal until the moment when Jesus says, come home. And he could call us home from Tel Aviv or Aurora, Colorado or Pearland, Texas. Doesn't mean we have to foolishly put ourselves into harm way, harm's way. I didn't say that. But good night to try to control the winds of fate so as to increase our longevity as if God isn't the first cause of all things is to miss the privilege of relaxing. Now's not the, the time to hide our head in the sand, dig a cave, play it safe. Play it safe? Are you kidding? There's work to be done. Are you kidding me? There are things to do. It's a lost and really dying world. We have answers. Robin Williams thought the only way out was to hang himself. I never liked Robin Williams. A gifted comedian, uh, yes, but his philosophy, his liberal, liberalism and all the rest, I didn't like the man. But I grieve the tragedy of his departure. Grief, and he went through programs and rehab and this and that. But it's the gospel that's the power of God to save someone, even from the depths of depression, so that depression can be managed, even with a measure of hope, in that God can even use depression for good. Conform us to the image of his son. And I think, God, I had the message that could have saved the life now and forever of Robin Williams. And all of those who are rallying and leaving flowers and all of his fellow Hollywood stars singing his praises didn't love him. Nobody has the capacity to truly love another until you love God. And nobody has the capacity to love God until you experience the love of God. Those are called Christians. We have the capacity, being recipients of the love of God, to communicate the love of God to others. Good night. When we die, we go home. So... So God has a purpose. Our lives are not controlled by impersonal forces such as chance or luck or fate. They're controlled by Almighty God. We may indeed suffer loss here. In fact, we do. But we shall receive ultimate gain there. This is what it is. We're going to be like Jesus. Wow. I close with this really good illustration by a man named Bill Morgan. He uh, reports that there is a... Uh, 
a portrait hanging on a wall at the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, of course. And there's an inscription uh, at the portrait. Here's what it says. James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Interesting. And Mr. Morgan makes this application. Neither do we have a literal portrait of the Lord Jesus either. But the likeness of the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus, he who has made us free way beyond political freedom, he who has freed us from the power and penalty and one day the presence of sin, he can be seen and will be even more fully and clearly seen in the lives of all those who are his. And he will use all things, good and bad, for the good purpose of bringing about a portraiture <laughs> of the Lord Jesus <clears throat> through imperfect, marred images such as you and I, when he conforms us, molds us, shapes us to be an accurate, precise reflection of the only begotten Son of God. That makes me want to say, hallelujah, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I refuse to fear what the future may hold because I know, how am I going to finish this? Who holds the future? Lord Jesus, you have really saved us, haven't you? From sin, for sure, but also from hopelessness, unanswered questions, mystery of life, purpose of suffering. You've saved us from all of that. You've given us your mind. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Can't wait to see what I, what we will look like, will be like when your work of redemption is fully accomplished. When we're glorified, free of sin, in bodies fit for eternity, sin free. Fit for worship and service, Lord Jesus, of you throughout eternity. We long for it. And out of trust, we say, Lord Jesus, please have your way. Whatever it is we may lose here is worth it. In light of the gain that there will be in terms of spiritual blessing to come. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>